Hello everyone and welcome to today's webinar. Uh, it's just gone one o'clock so I'm just going to give everyone a chance to join. Uh, do feel free to drop into the Q&A box and say hi. Um, we've disabled the chat feature as we've discovered it can cause problems for some people using screen readers. So I can just see a few more people joining now. Um, Dad, you could make it today. Okay, I think we're going to make a start now. So hello everyone and welcome to the 16th session now in our Accessibility Insights series, where AbilityNet's Head of Digital Inclusion, Robin Christofferson, hosts a monthly online chat with individuals who are each working to improve digital accessibility and digital inclusion. And this month he's chatting to Jonathan Mosen, who is CEO of Workbridge. I'm Annie Mannion and I'm Digital Communications Manager at AbilityNet and I'll be running you through today's session. So just to go through a few bits of housekeeping, uh, we have live captions provided today by MyClearText and you can turn on the captions using the CC option on the control panel. Um, additional captions are available via streamtext.net forward slash player question mark event equals ability net. And slides are available at uh, slideshare.net forward slash ability net and then also on our website at abilitynet.org.uk forward slash workbridge dash webinar. Uh, if you have any technical issues and you need to leave early, don't worry, you can, um, you'll receive an email in a couple of days time with the recording, the transcript and the slides. And also depending on how you joined the webinar, you'll find a Q&A window. So if you'd like to ask Jonathan or Robin any questions, do drop those in the Q&A area for them to address. And they'll do that uh, after today's session in a follow-up blog on our website, which will be available at uh, forward slash workbridge dash webinar. And then finally, we also have a feedback survey you'll be directed to at the end, uh, which invites you to tell us about any future topics you'd like us to cover in our webinars. So please do complete that at the end, that'd be great. So that's all from me for now. Um, and over to Robin and Jonathan. Fantastic. Thank you, Annie. Guys, I am really excited about this one. I know we've um, had illustrious guests on in the past, like Sarah Herlinger uh, of Apple and Jenny Leigh Flurry and Christopher Patno of Google, etc. But this one is actually, I think, one that I'm the most excited about because Jonathan has featured large in my whole tech life over several decades. <laughs> I hope I'm not going to make him feel really old. I think he's the same sort of age as me, to be honest. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm really well, Robin, and thank you for the very warm welcome. It's great to be here. Brilliant. So yeah, you're all the way over the world, the other side of the world in New Zealand. So uh, some ungodly hours. So thank you so much indeed. Now, we always start off with the same very corny question, which is, have you got a beverage, hot or cold, um, at your uh, disposal to help you get through this ordeal? So it is out of range of the camera and therefore my hands in the technology, but I have been sipping on some kombucha, actually, the elixir of life and good health. And, uh, and it keeps me going before things like this. Oh, fantastic. I'm actually drinking Milo, which is a kind of a multi chocolatey drink, which I oh, think is we have Milo to here in New Zealand. Of the words. I know yeah. my son um, brought it back when he was in uh, Tonga. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And um, I am not using a braille display at the moment because of that whole uh, Milo technology or kind of drink technology um, 
impact where uh, yeah they don't the two are negatively opposed no. so yeah I'm, you do uh, not want to get milo on your brow display <laughs> no no so i'm just hoping i don't know whether to add water to see if that'll free up anyway well that's a conversation <laughs> for another day but anyway brilliant so yeah thank you very much indeed for joining me today and as annie mentioned you are a ceo of the largest uh, equal opportunities work placement uh, organization in New Zealand, I think. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong. And um, have been involved in assistive technology um, and disability rights um, that both come together very nicely in your current position. But in those areas, and particularly the kind of cutting edge assistive technology field for well over three decades now, very, very, uh, you know, veteran of this, uh, this area. Um, in your opinion, what would you say have been the key changes in this area or these areas in say the past 10 years for example i think the biggest change is the embracing of the needs of disabled people by mainstream technology vendors and apple deserves a lot of credit for this and in fact uh, what apple started to do predates that decade by just a wee bit yeah. But the fact that all of the major tech companies now understand that we have a, a, a range of people with accessibility requirements who should be accommodated in their devices without having to purchase any third party tool, that is the biggest change because it's also filtered through to assistive technology companies who've had to think about, well, how do we add value now? If you've got basic mainstream access, how do these third party assistive technology companies add value? So that has been significantly disruptive. Absolutely. It, it's massively um, shifted away from um, very expensive, uh, relatively um, infrequently updated assistive technology to um, giving that that sector a boost as well because of the um, uptick in mainstream inclusion. And that's, you know, empowered people change the lives. I mean, I'm not sure how much assistive technology I'm using at the moment um, because of the braille display uh, issue earlier. <laughs> so uh, I think all mine's <laughs> mainstream at the moment. So um, what do you think then going looking forward is sort of the trajectory of this area that we're both involved in, um, in, in the years to come? What do you think are the changes that, you know, necessarily need to happen now, particularly to sort of provide an equal playing field, equal opportunities for people with disabilities in education and particularly to get into the workforce? Yeah, anyone who makes predictions about technology is an extremely brave person, of course. But I think from a philosophical point of view, We've talked about the benefits of what has happened. There are also some risks, and the risks are that when you have mainstream companies that have become assistive technology companies, we become just one priority of many. So when you were using a screen reader that was developed entirely for you and with a lot of influence by blind people, and that was their core function, that was what they did, you kind of knew who everybody was. And if you really had a significant enough problem, you could ping the appropriate people and get their attention. Uh, if you're in the know, you can still do that, but it's harder. And it's also harder to get uh, your tasks or, or the, the tasks of assistive technology prioritized in the myriad of the many other considerations that mainstream companies have. So the impact of that is that you have 
companies that sort of support Braille, but there are genuine issues in terms of supporting Braille well enough, in my view, to be used in an education context. So for, for old people like me who've been using Braille for a very long time, if you get a product that has a few foibles when it comes to Braille, we can work around those because we're seasoned Braille users and we've become used to them and, and we, we, we accept those idiosyncrasies. In the context of kids, who are just learning Braille, that's not really acceptable. They need to understand the rules of Braille to get good habits right from the beginning. If they're having to compensate for bad technology with serious bugs, that's a concern. So on the one hand, I think it's really good that kids going to school now, instead of using a very expensive proprietary piece of technology, they may well be using the same technology as everybody else. And children, particularly teenagers actually, are quite sensitive to that. They don't like to stand out in, in that kind of way, that they need something that's special. So if you can give someone a mainstream device, that's really good. But the mainstream device has to be up to the task. And at the moment, there are some cases where it is not. And so we do have the danger, I think, of some of these uh, quality assistive technology companies going out of business due to lack of demand or, or doing something different and leaving us with mediocre products. And that has a direct impact on the potential future employability of blind people. That's why I've always been a very firm advocate for being taken seriously, for quality, for not just tugging our forelock and saying, thank you very much for doing this. We are customers, we are consumers, our money is as good as everybody else's and we are entitled to quality. Absolutely. And um, I'm, I'm conscious that we've got a mainstream audience here, mostly IT professionals, mainly developers and who ha are passionate about accessibility. That's why they tune in each month. Um, they might be championing um, inclusion within their organizations, etc. But they may not be that familiar with Braille technologies. And I've, we've been talking about Braille display and how they're um, not particularly compatible with liquids. Um, but why? Why? I mean, Braille, you've been a huge proponent, advocate, champion for Braille and it being an, a, a vital um, skill to, for, um, you know, literacy for people with uh, vision impairment, but also to help them with their employability, as you mentioned a moment ago. Do you want to just elucidate on why Braille is so important and what that tech looks like for people that have no idea what a refreshable Braille, Braille display is and why it's quite so expensive? Sure. And the first thing I would say is thank you to those people who are watching this, who are allies. We need allies. Disabled people need allies, people who get it, who genuinely want to champion uh, opportunity. And so I'm incredibly grateful. And I think the key to doing that well is to keep on asking end users how things are going and genuinely accept any feedback as constructive criticism. Uh, specifically regarding Braille, I mean, Braille is the only means that a blind person has to write something down and read back what they have written. So I've worked in broadcasting. I do a lot of public speaking. Uh, I deal with an enormous amount of information where I might be in a meeting and I have to process anything from financial data to, uh, to reports that my team are putting together. You know, without Braille, it would be much more complex because I would have to listen with text to speech 
while also trying to listen to what's going on in a meeting. Now, that's difficult for many people, but for me particularly, I also I have a dual sensory loss, so I have a hearing impairment. That will be very difficult to do. And in a Braille display, there are plenty of moving parts. Uh, each dot is its own piezoelectric uh, cell, which pops up on the Braille display. So, you know, you've got 40 cells on an average Braille display times uh, eight of these little dots. That's a lot of moving parts where things can potentially go wrong. But the numbers are in and the numbers say really clearly that if you are blind and a Braille user, you have a much higher chance of being employed. In fact, the unemployment rate of blind Braille users of working age starts to come within the regular range, the, the regular labour market. But if you take Braille out of the mix, then the unemployment among blind people is exceptionally high. And so there does seem to be a correlation between Braille skills and employability. Brilliant. Nice summary. Thank you. And obviously we're kind of focusing on, on Braille technology and kind of um, blindness issues here because that's an area that's close to both of our experience. But WorkBridge um, is a pan disability organization and you know the same is true across the full range of assistive technologies some quite specialist and uh, relatively expensive some you know bit well much built in already and as we as you were talking about before that has really flourished in recent recent times so we were just talking about a really quite expensive um, but incredibly empowering piece of technology but yeah there's there's the full gamut of assistive technologies and uh, it's really behoven on IT professionals, particularly at admins uh, within an organization to make sure that the settings that are already in those technologies in people's hands on their desks isn't locked down. Or if there is uh, restrictions imposed, that there is a very well-oiled, um, well-signposted uh, escalation so that people can you know, change the text size, change the colors, increase the mouse pointer, that sort of thing. Great. Yeah, it's um, a partnership too, isn't it? Because yeah. I, one of my great stories is when I used to do a bit of JAWS scripting as a consultant, I went into a very secure government environment, so secure that I can't even tell you what it is. <laughs> and I well, you, spent you could, the day... have to kill us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I spent the day um, working on a real whiz-bang set of JAWS scripts. So essentially it meant that the person working in this environment could press a key and have certain bits of information spoken or displayed on a braille display. And it was working really well. And then the next day the IT people re-imaged his system to upgrade to some sort of new thing. And they didn't take a backup of the JAWS scripts and neither had I because I didn't have, I couldn't put a thumb drive in that machine for security reasons. I had no way of backing them up. And so all of that work was gone and I had to do it again. So definitely successful integration into a workplace really is incumbent upon a partnership between the IT people and the assistive technology user. Absolutely. And luckily, there is a broad recognition of the, the, the power and the benefit of a diverse workforce. But there is still that friction, um, you know, particularly when it comes to uh, IT and being able to give you the solutions that you desperately need to, you know, be as productive as as everybody else in the same office. Mm. Um, so, yeah, talking about friction, then in your uh, work uh, in helping, you know, create a more diverse workforce in New Zealand in this case um, some people see you know some friction between the needs of a diverse workforce for example and sort of hard-nosed business concerns how do you see um, that you know disabled people having to advocate for themselves you know standing up 
speaking out for what you know what they need or what they believe in um maybe particularly at senior le or leadership level when you know it's a really hard commercial environment and there might be significant forces pushing back yes i think this is one of been one of the great challenges that i have experienced in my life because i have done stints at a senior management level in a number of assistive technology companies and obviously quality value for money just a fair go it has always been very important to me and so there is this balancing act between being on the inside and being muzzled to some degree i mean obviously if you have a problem with a, a policy decision that's been taken or a product that has been released that you don't think should have been uh, yet then if you start talking about those things publicly you're not going to last long so you do have to make some trade-offs between the price of being on the inside and making a difference uh, and being true to your values and where you get the balance is i think a very much a personal thing and a matter of integrity for each person so i do take my hat off to those who are working in mainstream environments who are disabled and are working away and are probably making all sorts of noise behind the scenes that we don't actually know about. That's a really important role to play. Um, in a general sense, I talk a lot to employers who understand that they need to create more diverse workplaces, but businesses are risk averse, and there's never been more true a time than this COVID era where we're still recovering, certainly in New Zealand, from very severe lockdowns mm -hmm. people perceive employing disabled people as a risk but the reason why they perceive it as a risk is because it's an unknown and anything unknown in business is classified as a risk and so when i talk to some of these large employers i talk to them about the fact that they are potentially missing out on a competitive edge that their competitors don't know about when you start couching it in those commercial terms, you, know, you, you can appeal to people's sense of justice and goodwill and all those sorts of things. But in the end, the bottom line is the bottom line. So if you can go in and start talking to people about you know, why would you pass up the opportunity to employ somebody who's going to be dedicated, loyal, because they're disabled, they'll be thinking out of the box. They'll be that they've got really constructive, innovative solutions to problems. You can have all of those skills on your team and it will benefit you in so many ways. And so I think it's important to meet people where they are and talk both in an economic sense uh, as well as a, as a moral sense. Absolutely. And um, thankfully, you know, we're able to have those conversations much more in recent years about the compelling business case, the carrots. Um, there's, there's great stats here in the UK um, from the health and safety executive uh, government department that are, you know, concerned with um, welfare and, and uh, productivity, etc. within the workforce and, you know, a diverse, a more diverse workforce is a happier workforce. It takes less a sick leave. Um, teams that are more diverse are more productive and uh you know all the kind of key indicators of a, a healthy workforce all go up when it when you know the the more diverse that uh, team and the larger workforce is so yeah absolutely and i really love the fact that you're pushing the business case when at the same time you have been hugely influential in new zealand for the the sticks 
side of, of things as well as the carrots um <laughs> you know to, to make sure that that it's enshrined in in legislation as well and you know that risk that you mentioned before comes from your hard work in uh, in making sure that there is um legal consequences as well so that's brilliant um any other comments on that one or should i sorry if you felt i felt like you might wanted to say something there uh no just just absolutely <laughs> you've, you've 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 got to you've got to meet people where they are and um i i think the fact that i am blind and also hearing impaired and i'm going in and talking to these employers really does make a difference as well i'm yep. passionate about the need for more disabled people to be in senior leadership positions because you can bring an authenticity to a discussion it's pretty hard for an employer to argue that a blind person can't yeah. uh, be a senior manager or lead an organization uh, with officers right across the country when they've got someone sitting right in front of them. Um, then what you get, though, is the kind of super blind or as they often like to say in America, super blink uh, mode where people say, well, you may be able to do it, but you're an exception. In fact, I've often wondered whether you know, that was the case with David Blunkett, for example, who, regardless of what side of the political spectrum one is on, you know, as a blind person, he was able to succeed at extremely senior levels of government. Yep. And yet, when I say to people, did having somebody in the House of Commons with a guide dog reading statements from hard copy Braille, did that actually make a tangible difference to the way that blind people are perceived in general? Quite a few people have said to me, probably not, that people thought he was just some sort of unusual outlier. It certainly helps to have as many visible um, examples of people who are, you know, professional in their field um, and competent and, uh, you know, being like everybody else in being able to work very effectively in their chosen profession. Um, mm. In New Zealand, obviously, you mentioned about lockdown. Has you have you personally or your organization um, got any takeaways from the whole COVID and home working thing? Um, certainly here in the UK, you know, we've we've seen lots of benefits as well as challenges. We were very fortunate in that because of my IT background, we were incredibly well equipped to just switch to all of us working from home by the time New Zealand went into its famous first level four lockdown. And so while a lot of our funders and things were scrambling around, we were just rocking along, mm -hmm. uh, all working from home. So I'm really pleased with that. Um, I have worked largely from home in my career for the last, I don't know, 25 years or so, maybe, maybe a little less than that, at least two decades. And I think there are many benefits in, in doing this. As someone who has a hearing impairment, if I was just blind on it's by itself, I wouldn't be so concerned. But when you travel and you're being bombarded with sounds that are being processed through hearing aid technology and that sort of thing, to be absolutely honest, it is quite stressful. Mm -hmm. And especially when you go to unfamiliar environments. So the idea that more people are now willing to do it, equipped to do it, go on Zoom or Teams and have meetings, I love this. It just means that it takes a lot of the stress away from the actual getting to and from. And I'm more able to be at my best for the actual meeting themselves. You have people who are absolutely capable of contributing significant things to a workforce. But it might be that 
the time of day at which they're best to do that could vary from day to day, depending on uh, their disability. So mm -hmm. Zoom is, and other technologies like it is really inclusive. We can make the most of our workforce. And I know that some people do not thrive in this environment. I have staff members who are uh, really missing the face-to-face -face contact. So we will move into this hybrid type of mode. And that's the kind of thing that Zoom and Microsoft are now talking about when they think about the future of work. But I'm, I'd like to hope that now that we're a bit more used to working this way, that we'll be a lot more inclusive. And it was interesting to me, disabled people said, wow, we've finally got the accommodations we have been asking for for years uh, because now everybody needs them. And they've been saying, well, welcome to our world. So it's amazing how every cloud has a silver lining. There was a recent um, global survey by Accenture and 11% of disabled workers uh, reported having challenges in home working due to COVID versus versus 21% of the uh, you know larger workforce. So that was that was really interesting. Uh, Zoom dysmorphia I heard about the other day where people are um, having body image challenges after having spent however many months, 15 months, seeing a version of themselves on screen in constant, you know, Zoom meetings and things. And as blind people, we uh, uh, spared of that from that at least. So yeah, brilliant. Um, looking forward then, very briefly, what are you most excited about on the tech horizon, whether it's personally or for your uh, stakeholders uh, in Workbridge, you know, people um, who are going to be the future diverse workforce? I think when we crack the whole self-driving car thing, that is going to be enormously significant, particularly for people like me, for blind people. Um, transportation is a significant issue. And while we have taxis and rideshare services, if you're not familiar with the area, they can be expensive, they can be prohibitive. I look forward to a world where vehicle ownership is quite rare and where you just summon the vehicle uh, they become a public utility so this perhaps is way too optimistic and utopian on my part but transportation is i think almost a final frontier i also think what apple is purported to be doing with uh, glasses so the augmented reality glasses mm -hmm. is going to be very interesting because at the moment we have lidar technology built into the pro iphones and I, for one, have found that very interesting, particularly as someone with dual sensory loss. Just the other day, I was in an environment where I needed to maintain social distancing. We were all masked up and it was very different. People were walking on carpet, so it was quite difficult for me to follow them. And I suddenly had this brainwave and I got my iPhone 12 Pro Max out and I held it in front of me with a LiDAR enabled. And I was actually able to hear where that person was and follow them that way. So when you put that technology into glasses, I think it will be very interesting to see what impact that has on blind people. And I think that could be the big next significant disruptor. I'm super excited about both of those. Really am. They can't come quickly enough. Yeah. <laughs> Automated uh, driverless vehicles have been just around the corner for quite some time now. So yeah. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Well, we're almost out of time. Um, I could talk for another half an hour at least, but um, now each session we finish off with a question from the previous guest and then asking you if you have anything to pass on to the next one. So last month's guest was Susanna Lauren. She's Chief Research Innovation Officer at Funka in Sweden. 
um, and also chair of or representative of the IAAP, the International Association of Accessibility Professionals, to Europe. And she had um, a comment, which was that when can she come and visit you in New Zealand? Because she absolutely <laughs> loves the country. And she had very nice things to say about the importance of the work that you're doing at Workbridge, because that's obviously very dear to her heart as well. Uh, but her question was, when do you think um, will come a time where disabled children at school are asked the same question as uh, every other child, which is, what do you want to do when you grow up? Do you want to be a pilot? Do you want to be a spy? Do you want to be a doctor? You know, when will they get all the same, all the normal questions that other children get? That's a really good question. Well, the first thing I'd say to Susanna is there are a lot of New Zealanders who'd like to come home as well. We, we've yeah. got to open our borders sometime and it's quite complex getting in here right now. So we'd love to see you when that's possible. Mm -hmm. um, look, the, this, this question is so critical. And to me, it all comes down to mentoring at all levels. Some professionals really embrace it. And, and interestingly, some are quite nervous about embracing it. So in my view, when a child is identified as having an impairment, one of the first things that they want to know is you know, what's likely to become of them, because all parents want the so-called perfect baby, whatever that is, mm. and they may not have had any engagement with disabled people before. Suddenly, they've got this little bundle of joy that they've been looking forward to, and you've got a little child here with an impairment and many just don't know what it means and people will react very differently. So right at the beginning, I think it's really important that those parents get exposure to adult role models with the same impairment as their child to set expectations. Uh, then of course, obviously education professionals have to be uh, in the same boat and, and set high expectations. But the critical years for me are those teenage years. I know that for blind children, for example, which is my own impairment, once the teenage years start to come across, come along, you've got things like relationships and dating to consider. Some people are so bombarded with negative messages about blindness mm -hmm. that they have a very low self-worth. And then the uh, other kids start to drive and, and you can't do that either. And so it can be a very difficult time. So at that point, especially, those kids need exposure to adult role models with the same impairment as them who can help set high expectations to champion what's often called the tyranny of low expectations. And so when it comes to career counselling, that's when it's really important that disabled people are in the high schools setting those high expectations. Um, it, it comes back to that classic phrase about nothing about us without us. We have to be far more involved in the upbringing of disabled kids than we are at the moment. That's absolutely critical. Absolutely. I'm getting quite emotional because, uh, yeah, for me, it was all of those things. Plus, you know, marriage, were, you know, we, I could never assume that I would meet somebody. Um, yeah very luckily, you know, but uh, I did. So, but yeah, absolutely. We, we couldn't assume anything really, all the normal stuff. So yeah, a lot needs to change before that is no longer the case. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you very much. Final question um, to pass on. Question or comment to next month's guest, who is Ted Drake. He's accessibility leader for that massive global company Intuit. So have you got anything that you'd like to pass on to Ted? 
I guess my question would be, and you may well be asking this anyway, but my question would be, what is Intuit doing, which is a great company, to ensure that disabled people of, of all kinds can succeed in Intuit uh, to, to make sure that uh, they are maximizing the potential of disabled people? Oh, brilliant, brilliant question. I don't know if I would have, but we are now. Great stuff. Yeah, lovely. Jonathan, thank you so much indeed. Keep up the brilliant work. Uh, Jonathan does a million and a half podcasts, guys. So if you just want <laughs> to check that out, his name, I'm sure we'll bring them all up. Um, but yeah, prolific in, in his work life and in his uh, out of work life as well. So brilliant. Jonathan, thank you so much indeed. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Fab. And I'll pass you back to Annie just to do a bit of housekeeping at the end. Thanks, Annie. Yeah, thank you so much, Jonathan and Robin. Um, there are lots of questions that we hope to answer online in the next few days. Um, so you'll receive an email with a link to access them. Um, and just finally, just a bit more information that might be of interest to you. Uh, AbilityNet also runs online training sessions on digital accessibility, and you can find out more about those at abilitynet.org.uk forward slash training. Uh, we have training courses available for various roles, including later this week on the Thursday, the 14th of October, uh, accessibility for developers, JavaScript and SPA considerations. And then on the 21st of October, accessibility testing in mobile apps. Then on the 28th of October, accessible mobile development. And on Wednesday, the 3rd of November, InDesign accessibility. And you can also sign up to our newsletter for the latest announcements about digital accessibility, uh, visit our YouTube channel, um, download our podcast, and then we also have a suite of accessibility services to suit all types of organisations. And then finally, don't forget about our next webinars, um, which you can access at abilitynet.org.uk forward slash webinars. And as Robin mentioned, um, for November's Accessibility Insights, you can join us to meet Ted Drake from Intuit, and that's on Tuesday, the 9th of November. So thank you again, everyone, um, Jonathan and Robin, and everyone that's joined us. Uh, please do complete the feedback form. Um, you'll be directed to at the end, and we'll be in touch with you soon. Bye, everyone.